welcome to episode 31 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In this episode, we will be discussing the interactive design process for a conference website and corresponding app from initial design brief to site launch for a repeating customer. The conversation goes into specific details on working with an existing identity designed by another firm, mocking up animations for developers and clients to see, and how websites roll out in phases, not as a final finished piece that is the norm in print design. In a future episode, we will be following up this discussion with one about working with a brand new client who's launching a brand new project uh, about the entire process from start to finish. Now, today's guest is VJ Matthews, who co-founded W&Co in 2011. Noticing a trend toward mobile applications, VJ jumped on board and learned quickly the value of a digital presence. For over five years, VJ Matthews has designed and developed dozens of applications and has consulted with a wide variety of clients regarding digital strategy, design, and implementation, including AIGA, the City of Newark, Harvard University, the Four Seasons, Samsung, and Wolf Olins. His work has been published in Design on Screen with an expected release date of October 2016, published by Sandu. The fourth edition of Designing Brand Identity by Alina Wheeler. Numbers in Graphic Design by Roger Fawcett-Tang. The fifth edition of Graphic Design Solutions by Robin Landa. And the second edition of Signage and Wayfinding Design by Chris Kellery and David Vanden Eden. Additionally, VJ has spoken at the National Conference at SEGD, the Fashion Institute of Technology, the International Sign Association Conference, the Digital Signage Expo, and for the print magazine design series. Prior to founding WNCO, VJ worked as a senior designer at 212, an environmental graphic design firm in New York. Before that, he was an associate designer at WGBH, PBS's largest producer of web and television content, where he created a variety of print materials for television programs. He also worked as a print designer for Hatch Show Print, a respected letterpress print shop of music and event posters in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, VJ. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, great. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. Absolutely. So, um, the reason I'm having you here is when it comes to designing a print piece, I think all design educators know the print process. However, most of us who teach interactive design uh, probably are self-taught and came from a print background and therefore are teaching students interactive design based on a print design process, even though the two, I think, are very different. Since you just created the website for the AIGA National Conference, um, I want to chat with you um, about the entire process from creating that, from initial client meeting to the site actually going live. So 
my first question is, was the website design and development a typical job and a typical client you'd normally work with? Um, yeah, um, so it, it's interesting. We've been working with AIJ since we formed our company back in 2011. They were our first client, um, and they helped us frame the kind of projects we like working with uh, and the kind of people we like being a part of. Um, I mean, they are a kind of organization that value design and the people who value your opinion. Um, but that relationship really took a lot, a lot of time to build. Uh, when we started working with them, uh, was around the same time that they started pursuing a stronger digital presence. Um, you know, we had a, just formed our company, and we too were embarking on the role of you know transitioning from our typical print process to more of an interactive process. Uh, and so, in many ways, we're embarking on this transformation together. You know, and figuring out a lot of things along the way in terms of you know what it means to have a digital presence, what it means to have a content strategy, understanding your audience. Um, so that relationship was kind of forged over the years and put us in an interesting position in terms of how we work with them, um, namely because we no longer really have a truly rigid formal process uh, when it comes to taking on these projects. You know, it's far more fluid because we're so familiar with their challenges and what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, that that mindset actually is pretty common these days. You know, you've, I'm sure you've, you hear of these stories now of these larger institutions just buying out the small independent agencies because they have a strong relationship with them and because they understand uh, the voice of the company and the vision of the company. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting back to your initial question, they are definitely now a typical client we work with and pretty much a very typical client, uh, or I'm sorry, project, uh, because it requires both design and development. You, had, you said something interesting there that I didn't really um, ever think about before. So is that actually happening where kind of like, um, I don't know, like in the startup field, you know, you know, bigger, you know, bigger companies are buying up smaller companies just so they don't have to go reinvent the wheel. Is that actually yeah. happening to firms? It, it does actually. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. Uh, maybe the more, more relevant one that you heard about recently was, you know, Facebook bought out Hot Studio. Uh, it was, you know, well, a company founded by Maria uh, Giudice, um, and they just got bought out because they had been working with them for so long. Um, Facebook recognized the value of that company's perspective on how to kind of bring themselves to a, a, a new position in the marketplace. A lot of companies, you know, don't necessarily invest in in-house design team from the get-go. They just farm it out. Um, and then the in-house team eventually gets built out you know, oftentimes with the support of that third-party agency. And in some cases, they just get bought out entirely um, just because it makes it a little bit easier to, you know, build that capability in-house. Okay. So, yeah, sorry. I've never I never really heard of that before. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. I'm glad to kind of get, uh, learn about that. <laughs> All right. So, but back onto the, like, this, this idea of the design process. So, from just, you know, with based on like, you know, it's, it's a client. So did the AIJ contact you or <laughs> did you get in touch with them? Um, it's almost like a, a twofold. So for this conference website, um, and again, this is really because we've been working with them for so long, they literally sent me a Gchat message saying, hey, the conference is gearing up, uh, FYI. <laughs> um, and I'm like, and I chatted back saying, cool, keep me posted. Uh, and of course, there was the follow-up email saying, hey, can you come in and we'll discuss about this a little bit more formally. Um, so in that regard, it was a very informal kind of start of the project. But that being said, 
um, I think some context will will help to kind of show the relevance mm-hmm. of of that relationship. You know, when we were first brought on board to start developing the conference or you know digital properties for the conference, that was back in 2011. Um, we had you know we were requ- we were asked to you know create uh, an iPhone application for that conference. Um, in many ways. Um, it was really for AIG to test the waters to see, you know, would an app be relevant for this for this audience, you know, for this community of, of attendees, you know, at this at this venue. Um, we didn't know, you know, it was 2011, and bear in mind the iPhone had only really been around about three years, so it was very much brand new. Um, and in that regard, in that process was very formal, you know, AIJ you know, reached out to us because we had already worked on a, a project. So they kind of shortlisted us. Uh, they provided us a brief, a very formal brief, you know, listing out the goals, the requirements, um, the general background of the conference itself for this year or for that year, I'm sorry. Um, they provided a list of assets, you know, including, you know, conference fonts, color palette, uh, image assets, as well as their own brand guidelines. So we were fully aware of, you know, how they need to be presented within this digital application. Uh, as well as just general reference materials from conferences past. They had been doing the conference about 20 years, you know, and so they had a certain way of doing it in a traditional sense. Um, and to that point also, up until 2011, you know, all the assets generated for the conference were very print-based, you know, mm-hmm. long-form schedules, booklets, uh, things that have been, you know, meticulously crafted by various design studios, you know, every year for the conference. You know, beautiful, beautiful specimens, if you will. So the app was very much an experiment. Um, and so, you know, when we we pitched the job, you know, we provided a budget, a timeline, and, you know, they, they agreed to uh, those terms, um, and we began work. Um, and so, you know, we crafted the app, and, you know, it was very, very quick timeline. We had about four weeks to do it at that time, and we were just trying things. We were just trying to do... The, the most we could do within the time frame that we had to make sure that it could meet the requirements that AIJ had at that time. Um, and so, you know, released it, and what turned out to be is that it was wildly loved and accepted by the audience for one very simple reason. Um, it was the most relevant, uh, up-to-date piece of information that they had at the conference. So again, looking at the print world, you know, all those, you know, specimens were, you know, designed and crafted, you know, months prior to the conference. They just had to be so they could get printed and shipped to the venue on time. But that being said, you know, you have a conference that is constantly in flux. You know, you know, speakers are changing, locations are changing, maybe even, you know, the events are changing pretty much the day of the conference. So you needed to create a system that would allow it, you know, to be updated. And that's where the app really became a, a shiny example of of that of that medium because it could stay up to date. You know, it was constantly pulling in new information as, you know, events were changing and it became the kind of go-to standard for the latest and greatest information at the conference. Um, and so, you know, it became also another thing because people had their phone on them at all times, they, they valued having just a singular, app, you know, application that housed all that printed content. You know, again, bear in mind, you have a pretty big booklet of information that you're being provided and that's pretty thick you don't want to walk around with you know around town with that thing but if you're already walking around with your phone and you have basically this this app that has the exact same information becomes far more convenient um so you know this really paved the way for you know the aij and how they were you know pursuing these digital applications and it really 
transform from this novel tchotchke to kind of a utility for the conference. Um, so, you know, that kind of set a precedence for how to move forward with, with the conference uh, in the coming years. And then, you know, come year 2012, we pursued an iPad app as well. Um, and that didn't really go over too well. You know, even though iPads were really, you know, becoming part of the marketplace at the time, it didn't resonate with, with the audience. Mm -hmm. And that was a learning process. You know, what works, what doesn't work. And we realized, you know, that was a great experiment to create, craft uh, an iPad app alongside the iPhone app. Um, but it just didn't have the same numbers or didn't resonate with the audience the same way. So the following year, we ditched it. But what we did replace, like in this now 2013, we, we were tasked to create a website alongside the app. Up until that point, they were using their event system that handles all registration. But you know, as the conferences were getting a little bit more robust and complex, they wanted to create a website that could also capture the same depth of information uh, in a very structured way. And so that was the first year where we started looking at, you know, this this conference uh, application, not so much as a one-off, but more as a platform. Um, we started looking at the relationship between these two devices because they are in many ways wildly different in terms of interface, in terms of content, in terms of general usability. You know, you're talking about a stationary application that you experience at home, maybe, you know, a hotel room, you know, on a computer, as opposed to a mobile application that you're you know, using on the go. But at the same time, you have to start looking at it in terms of how they relate to each other. Um, and that was an interesting kind of experiment because we didn't know. We weren't necessarily sure. You know, we, we had a good idea of, you know, some of the content types we were dealing with, but now building a platform that could work together was something that was brand new for us. Um, and so that was, again, you know, uh, an iterative experiment, you know, let's, let's get it out there. Let's start examining the content types. Let's start planning out information hierarchy that, uh, connects the two and see how it works. And it was great. You know, it, it worked out pretty well. You know, we definitely made a you know, few mistakes in terms of how organized content, but that's part of the process is figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And so, you know, I'm going to skip a year, but looking at last year, we took everything that we had learned and developed the last couple of years and really transformed it again uh, and in a kind of painful way, um, uh, <laughs> basically because we had to start over from scratch. Um, and here's the thing with, with technology and something that is a pain. You know, you know, with, I think, printing materials, there is a very kind of formal process in terms of, you know, the, the tools at your disposal and what you're trying to achieve. With technology, it's ever-evolving uh, in terms of how you actually build things out uh, in terms from, you know, just a user interface to how you actually program things. And last year, a new framework was released that kind of changed the, the stage, if you will. And it's a framework called React that was crafted by uh, Facebook. Mm -hmm. And basically, we, we examined this thing, and it looked like the future um, in terms of performance, sustainability, and just compatibility. Um, you know, I think one thing that you have to realize, you know, as a practitioner as well as, as a student is that you're not just looking at one format. You're looking at multiple formats. You're looking at web. You're looking at Android devices, iPhone devices, kiosks, and so on and so forth. And you have to have this flexibility in terms of how you design as well as how you program. It's a duality, if you will. Um, and that's, that's something that you're always trying to figure out, like, how do you do it the most efficiently? You can't just spend your entire life, you know, doing a project because you just don't have that kind of you know, amount of time to work on because there is typically an impending deadline. So you have to be smart about it. And so seeing this framework allowed us to recognize that value of like a nice balance between, uh, you know, amount of time needed versus what could be outputted. 
Um, but you know, that required reinvesting and rebuilding from scratch. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing, you know, so we are looking at like success and scalability. And for us, it's really a learning process. It's about trying things, about listening to others and parsing feedback. Um, you know, for this project, you know, you, we didn't do any user testing, you know, prior to the release of the project. We actually used the conference itself as our user test. Uh, and we would take those findings and apply it to the following year. So this project is never done. Um, it keeps on being iterated upon and improved in terms of usability and performance. Um, so, you know, for us, the success of the, of the project is really about invisibility. You know, the, this idea that people now just expect it. You know, they, they go onto iTunes or Google Play Store and, you know, expect to see that app ready to go prior to the conference and downloading it. And when no one really says anything about it, but you see them using it, that's, that's a really good feeling <laughs> because, you know, it, it worked. Um, and that's, yeah, we, we're always uh, aware of that. Yeah. Um, this is just for the listeners. I want to let them know that since um, this, is, this is an atypical situation in that because you had an existing relationship, you've had prior, you've already conducted research as part of prior, like you said, conferences. Exactly. So um, just letting the listeners know that in the future, I'm going to be talking with you about um, when it's a brand new relationship with a client. How do you, well, we'll talk in the future about how do you set yourself up for that success and that future scalability? Um, and how do you research all that out when it's a brand new client? Yeah. Right. Um, but so, um, so you've, you've, you've had all this organic research that you've done and that you've built up um, from this existing relationship. So once you, you kind of figured out that they needed a website and, or yeah. that, and they needed an app, um, what did you do next? What was the next process once you just figured out what they needed? And it sounds like they also, you also already had most of the content and even yeah. some branding yeah. um, guidelines yeah. and assets to start with. So, yeah, again, because, you know, this project is more of an iteration mm -hmm. of what we've done in the past, there were basically two, essentially two tracks of work this year. Um, and actually a little bit more uh, development heavy because we're including an app, uh, an Android app this year. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because we didn't make one last year, we knew it had to be built. So while the design team was working on this year's user interface for the website, the development team was actually just working on porting last year's design fun functionality of the iPhone app to a native Android app. So then when the dev team was working on implementing the website design, the design team was now working on updating the design of the app. And now we just got, you know, signed off on the design of the app. So the dev team will be working on implementing that design on the iPhone and Android. And because the functionality is pretty much squared away now, because the dev team was working on that while the design team was working on the user interface, it's really now more about just implementing this brand new skin on the app. So the conference has definitely a lot of moving but expected pieces, which makes it a lot easier to delegate and stagger the process for just the sake of efficiency. Um, and mo so, and here's the other thing, you know, unlike a lot of projects, you know, this conference has a very set hard date. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, you, you know, with a lot of projects, you know, there is always this wiggle room. Like when does the thing really need to launch? When does it uh, need to be, you know, internally released versus public released? Um, this thing needs to be fully baked with an ample amount of time for, um, users to experience it and download it. So we have to move very quickly on a lot of these pieces. And so that requires just assigning roles to people and having them just do the work. 
Can you talk about those those roles? Um, sure. Is it in teams? Yep. And, and you've now you've got two sets of develop. Well, I. I'm assuming you have three sets of developers, um, eight, you know, ones that are doing the web, ones that are doing the uh, iOS, and ones that are doing the Android. And how are designers working to keep the branding consistency and design <laughs> consistency across all three? I mean, yeah, can you? How do you manage that? Uh, it's a lot, of, yeah, a little bit of juggling. Uh, and I should preface by saying. Uh, this year's identity was developed by Mother New York. Okay. Um, so they were they had already established you know typefaces. They had established a color palette. So that really set you know what well, we it's kind of the basic elements of what we had to work with. Um, but that being said, you know we really had to translate that very basic information into a much more interactive piece, which is where you know the hard work comes in uh, from a uh, design and development perspective for web and uh, iPhone. Um, so the teams, yes, uh, we kind of bucket them to two groups, design and then development. Um, you know, the designers, typically interactive designer, information architect, uh, content strategist, but not so much this time around. It's really more about just visual designers. And then development, you know, we had uh, two, two developers on it full time um, working on these various assets. And we really only needed two because, again, it was an iterative approach from last year's. It's more about making these various tweaks and updates uh, in that staggered approach. Um, and so when it comes to, to the, you know, the design, you know, it's really you know, examining the assets that we have at hand and just going through a traditional approach of, of establishing your various page templates, uh, taking the elements that have been in place uh, established by the identity team and making sure that there is this consistency, at least from a web perspective. You know, we didn't look at the iPhone until the website was pretty much established because we knew that from a time-wise perspective, it was the most uh, pressing. You know, it's their, it's their initial portal for getting the word out that the conference is happening, and it's their singular portal for getting registrations for the conference. So that was our, our focus, you know, getting that thing fully baked before we even started looking at the iPhone. When that was fully approved in terms of, you know, the general aesthetic, um, and that was a very iterative approach, you know, going back and forth, but figuring out how to make sure that there was this consistency between what was happening in the print version of it, as well as the digital, or at least a happy medium. Then we started looking at the iPhone. And that was really more of a, a trickle-down uh, relationship from the rules that were established on the website. So then it was just more about making sure the iPhone pretty much shared the same values that were established on the website. So it was a much easier easier process. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I, another th something you mentioned earlier back that I didn't, I was aware of, but I didn't fully um, realize it until you just said it. And I think this is important in the classroom. And it was you said another firm did oh, yeah. the a, a original identity, and I think that's really important because that's the way the I, I that's the way the industry works. It's not always you know you're a one stop shop. Yeah. Um, and I'm and clients, you know, you have to collaborate with other people, you know, to fill each other's um, needs. So st students, I kind of think, have to need to get used to working that way. But in, in design school, we always, uh, at least I do, um, kind of start off with you're the content generators, you're developing the identity, mm -hmm. you're creating all this stuff. But I've never actually given the exercise of here's the visual identity 
mm-hmm. go make it work and stick to the original brand. So is there a... Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a very uh, astute observation because that's the reality in which we typically work. You know, again, we're, we're, we're an interactive company. We're, mm-hmm. we're priority, our priority is, is, you know, taking these elements and basically creating a container for it. Um, but we don't do it in a silo. You know, we, we work with, with our client who typically is responsible for the content. Uh, and then we work with the branding agency who's typically, uh, you know, responsible for the identity. So it is a very collaborative approach in terms of figuring out how, how all these moving pieces can work together to create that cohesive family. Um, you know, the idea of a one-stop shop, I don't know, is as relevant as it maybe it once was because now you have companies that are kind of specializing in various services. Um, and they become kind of experts in that domain. Um, and it, but it also allows for kind of a greater collaboration in terms of what can happen because all of a sudden you're, you're, you're working with people who are experts in a different field and, they, and you're learning so much from them because they provide a different perspective, a unique perspective that's foreign, not only foreign, but not common in your practice. And that allows for great conversation, great dialogue in terms of what this thing can be. Um, I think there, this value of, of diversity uh, in an opinion and perspective, and a lot of that comes from outside. Um, and just, you know, it comes to a greater solution at the end when you have these differing perspectives. That all being said, yeah, for us, it's managing a lot of those, those pieces. Um, so again, from the branding perspective, uh, it's, it's you know, working with them, understanding what is their intent with this identity and how can it translate from a, that, that more printed vision to this interactive vision. And that you know, looks like, okay, where's the flexibility? How can, how can we push it? How can we lay, add a layer of motion and interactivity in terms of how people click on things, how people respond to things, how you see transitions? So it's really about expanding that baseline design language to allow for uh, a greater interactivity. And then from a content perspective, you know, if AIJ is responsible for that, it's more about how do you craft um, a interactive solution that takes all the pertinent information and puts it in a way that makes it accessible. Again, you know, we're not talking about developing a book. We're creating these pages on a screen that requires a lot of scrolling. So you want to have this very concise messaging. You want to have a clear structure of information in terms of a hierarchy because, you know, people don't necessarily have the patience, or not the patience, but don't necessarily have the time to view, you know, pages and pages of information. They need things that are easily accessible uh, t- uh, so they can make those decisions or become more informed about what they're looking for. Um, from an educational standpoint, what can I do in the classroom to help? St- okay. Um, Brad Frost, you know, Atomic Design and Pattern Lab, and he, you know, he did a style guide podcast, um, a, a, a short run of them. And everybody's talking about style guides. Um, yeah. And I didn't, I, I always thought of style guides as like a branding guy, but I never really f- truly until you just said this about thought about the importance of like so much is handed off nowadays and not just handled by one person. So from an, what can, what should we be doing in the classroom to, you know, have students better documenting what they have? So, you know, it is something that they can hand off. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so 
it's interesting, you know, because there are definitely these two approaches, uh, you know, in the real world outside the classroom about how you how you build things out. You know, do you do everything in house or do you farm it out? And you know, it's just two ways of doing things based on capabilities. Now, from a classroom perspective, I think the documentation part is is a very interesting real world example because I think that's something that is kind of missing um, when it comes to translating your intent. To having it being implemented, mm-hmm. uh, and what we've realized is the importance of just providing uh, clear documentation in terms of a design language. Um, so you got to look at uh, the web as, or even even you know any I use the web in a very general sense, but anything kind of interactive about creating a design system. Um, and there needs to be rules that govern this system. It's no different than creating a set of brand guidelines for an identity. You know, you, there are ways of doing things uh, based on you know pixel widths, based on type size usages, based on general placement, do's and don'ts, if you will. Um, what that starts doing is starts creating this 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 toolkit, if you will, of how something could be implemented and extended across permutations that you didn't foresee. Again, just like brand guidelines. But those are through rules that have been established. Like, you know, you don't, you always include, you know, 100 pixel padding between these two elements. That's just a rule. Uh, And once you start doing that, you can easily extend it to new page types uh, or new models that haven't been established, but, but have the flexibility because you've established a lot of these baseline rules that govern such, such new features. so from a documentation perspective, oftentimes it's about, you know, uh, line, item, line item things like uh, uh, in terms of dimensions, in terms of stroke weights, in terms of pixel heights, in terms of type, type-based usages, uh, in terms of colors and how things can work together and how things should not work together. Uh, and that just creates this general, you know, understanding of how things should be implemented. Um, and that's really how we work now too. Like even internally, when we go from you know the design phase to the development phase, you know we're we're creating those kind of rules. We're creating that design system because then it helps the developer understand of how to structure things on a page. Like if he doesn't have to, if he understands that something is always going to be, you know, 12, 12 pixels, that's great. That can be a rule that he programmatically implements uh, that makes it just easier to to structure and and to evaluate. Um, if he's constantly guessing as to the the padding or the spacing or something like that, or he doesn't under, quite understand some of the established rules, then you're going to have this kind of wonky implementation because you're just kind of he's just kind of guessing or she's kind of guessing about what things uh, should be. Okay, so I have two follow up questions to that. Um, the first one is: so you're now in the design phase and you have um, your your creating these mock-ups um one how are you how are you creating those mock-ups and how are you testing them in the browser to say like you know or testing them on the phone how are you testing them to like no okay this typography is what it needs to be um this grid works the way i expect it to and then or if it does that even happen at in in that design phase and the second follow-up to that would be, once it's all done, how do you package up the design and hand it off to the developers? Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I think it's much easier than it was once, like, you know, five years ago. Uh, and that's simply through, uh, you know, pieces of new software that allow you to do quick browser testing. Even Safari, I think, has a built-in developer tool where you can just see how things look at various screen resolutions and scale. Um, 
you know, for us, you know, one thing that we always do is we work at 100%. Um, if we're de designing for a phone, we're going to be designing at the phone's resolution, at least as a, as a, as a baseline. Mm -hmm. And if we're designing for web, we're designing at the full web resolution uh, just because we now can because, you know, monitors are such high resolution that we, we have the space to do so. So you're always working at a true fidelity. Um, more importantly, and this is actually something that is kind of shared with just the print world, it's establishing a very strong grid um, mm -hmm. from the get-go. You don't want to just work on a blank canvas. You want to spend the time to create that gridded structure, no matter what it is. Maybe it's like a four-column, five-column, six-column, whatever it is. But by establishing that you know grid from the outset, then you can start designing very clearly in terms of, okay, how do these modules that I'm designing relate to each other, and more importantly, how do they relate at different screen resolutions as the screen browser either gets wider or gets smaller, because you start seeing this general flow of how content will eventually collapse onto itself to, to meet that mobile resolution. Um, so for us, like you know, it's a combination of lo-fi and hi-fi as well. So for example, uh, with the, the AIGF that we're working on right now, yeah, I had a you know good idea as to how how it should look and how it should work uh, because we've you know worked in this resolution before, worked on this device before, but you know we were dealing with brand new typefaces, you know, and that's always trick, you know, how a typeface translates from print to to digital because there's always potentially that that strange offset. Um, so for me, it was actually just working at you know full scale resolution and then just taking that image that I've crafted on my 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 canvas and just putting it on my phone literally through the photo viewer and seeing how it would look. Again, because you're working at a 100% scale, it is a true fidelity, like, okay, that's how it's actually going to look on my phone uh, when I'm interacting with it. And that just starts establishing those rules. Um, you know, I think, you know, for us, we, we realize the value, again, it's more about software conversation, about just choosing tools that work within our workflow. And that's a relationship between design and development um, and figuring out what they're most comfortable with as well. Um, you know, I think, you know, for us internally, like Photoshop was never our strongest suit because developers just didn't really care about layers. You know, they really like pages, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it allows them to quickly, you know, jump through on a PDF or an InDesign file or Illustrator file, uh, jump to the section that they need and to pull from. Um, layers, just, you know, you're constantly turning things on and off and cause mass confusion. So from a from that point of view, it's really about figuring out really what works for you. And I don't know if there's a best practice per se, mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's trial and error. You know what what works within your atmosphere, what works within your ecosystem, and and determining that. And it's a two way approach. So, you know, from a development perspective, you know, oftentimes I've had to learn tools that you know they feel comfortable with, so I can change my habits to make it easier for them to implement as well. And that includes you know learning some, like you know using Sublime text for these various changes um, when it comes to something more programmatic. So it's a it's a back and forth in that regard. Um, and it's just figuring out what's the best way to, to move forward uh, that's time effective as well as uh, design effective. So during the, this design phase, how often are you meeting with the client? What are you, you showing them? Like, you know, what is the, is there internal critiques? Just what does that process look like? Yeah. Um, and again, this is probably going to be more relevant when we talk about uh, the more typical client. Yeah. With this one, with this one, it was really more about um, kind of setting some expectations. Like, uh, 
I think the design process was really first uh, initiated with the conversation that we had prior to the start of the project about mm -hmm. understanding how to improve upon what we did last year. And that includes, you know, design criticisms, that includes management criticisms, includes just general feedback on how to make it a much more effective uh, user interface. Um, so those kind of, you know, critical feedback provided some, some things to, to govern the next design iteration. Um, so once we, we had that feedback, when we kind of parsed it and figured out, okay, what that actually translates to from a design perspective, then it was really about just doing almost like this visual wire, wireframe, which I hate doing because it jumps a step. You know, you're really going from this planning conversation right to design uh, without really figuring out how to make a, a more traditional sitemap as well as a wireframe to block out content. But again, this was because we had a long experience with this project that we were already comfortable with some of those variables and then really had to be discussed. So for us, it was more about creating this this visual wireframe that we then submitted to the client to review. It's like, hey, um, this is these are the all the templates we're looking at. This is now representative of some of the feedback that we got in terms of how content gets filtered and organized and having them respond to it. Um, and the thing is like though, throughout this entire process, it's a very kind of open conversation. Like, sure, we're not necessarily sharing maybe these raw designs because we haven't quite hit a milestone, but we are sharing our ideas and concepts. We are constantly, const you know, calling them, saying, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Or, you know, in terms of how sponsors should be organized, you know, is there a better way of doing something? Um, so, for us, it's about maintaining open dialogue so that we can easily converse with them. And that's, you know, the, the virtues of actually GChat. You know, I had mentioned earlier they initiated this conversation on GChat. Mm -hmm. We can just quickly ping them saying, you know, quickly, it's like, hey, uh, what do you think of this? And then have that immediate feedback without having to formalize that critique. Um, and that just allows for this more this fluidity, if you will, um, and these quick iterative changes that make the project a little bit more seamless because it's less formal in that regard. Um, so, uh, you know, once, once we provided them those kind of visual wireframes, they provided some obviously some feedback. Um, and then it was just more about passing it to the development team uh, once we took in that, that, uh, that uh, critique. Um, and then, you know, transitioning from design to development, I should backtrack by saying throughout the entire design process, development is there alongside us. And that's the benefit of having a development team in-house is that, you know, while you're designing something, Obviously, you're really kind of like trying to push this design language, but at the same time, it has to be grounded in reality. Um, and for the most part, you know, you know, anyone who's very familiar with the web understands basic functionality, understands things that can be done and cannot be done. But at the same time, oftentimes, maybe you're just unaware of some of the limitations of of the web and, you know, having a critical feedback throughout the process from a development perspective allows you to reevaluate something. Um, so for example, you know, this year we, as innocuous as it sounds, the menu that's featured on the, on the conference website is actually something that has never been done before uh, because of how it, how it works. So it was a conversation about what's the best way of doing that that allows, from a user perspective, achieve this, the goal you're trying to achieve with uh, this vertical dropdown that is kind of a sticky in the upper right-hand corner kind of system, 
but at the same time work across all resolutions, across all devices, across like tablets as well, because when you're no longer using click, how do you use the hover state or vice versa? Um, so by getting that critical feedback from a developer perspective, we can retweak the design to make sure that what's being presented can be implemented. And I think that's always a big trick too about uh, that transition from design to development is making sure what's being presented is feasible. Uh, and that's where that conversation really comes into play is by, by bringing the developer along for the design journey, you're constantly making sure that your designs make sense. Uh, and it's, it's a push and pull, if you will. You know, they're, they're saying you can do this um, or you can't do this. And then we're saying, well, could it do this instead? And so it's a conversation, it's a dialogue about the best way to proceed. Uh, and that's something I think is very important to, to, to understand. It's like, sure, you, you know, your intent may change, but oftentimes it's, it's, it could be for the better um, because it makes it a little bit more logical when it comes down to the implementation process. Um, and you must have read my mind because that actually like leads into my uh, next question. And I actually only have two more after that because oh. uh, I don't want to take up your entire day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with those animations, I uh, with the the perfect example is the, the you know the drop down menu, um, but also you know the sliding in from the next page. Yeah, is that's an enormous capital for a developer to create those. So that's a lot of time. So I, how do you go about mocking those? You know, how do the designers go about like mocking up like the, their 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 inner their animation ideas or their interaction ideas um, so they can show it to the de you know the developer is this yeah. feasible I mean do you use After Effects or yeah, Keynote well, I mean how do you do that yeah well it's interesting because I think everyone treats prototypes a little bit differently especially how to build them yes um, they do <laughs> you know <laughs> there are definitely a lot of pieces of software that allow you to you know quickly test interaction of the course but depending on the complexity I think designers will use whatever tool does the job the best to explain to the client or the developer so in our case, we use a combo of things. I think firstly, and I think really the fastest way is to simply find an example of an existing site that does the exact same thing you're trying to do. And that kind of cheat, you know, serves two purposes. Firstly, it allows you to build a catalog of interactions that you can reference in the future. Um, and I think secondly, it allows a developer to see a working example uh, to, and to either find a library that allows for that interaction or to simply backwards engineer it. Mm -hmm. um, the other way, and, and this is more for clients uh, to see in you know, basic mocks, you know, we'll use a, as, as simple as Keynote only because you know, it, it works well with our workflow, you know, translating our, our static designs into something uh, a little bit more interactive because you know, there's a nice strong relationship between how images work uh, between the two pieces of software. And you know, it has some basic quick animations that are you know, pre-built to basically sell what you're trying to achieve for the most part. You know, I think another piece of software sketch is actually really good, uh, especially um, for more complex interactions. But it really comes back down to the fact that it's about figuring out what works best for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times um, it's just about explaining things as well. Uh, one of the biggest, I think, hurdles is learning how to talk about an interaction. Um, and I think you should be able to delineate um, the step-by-step -step process, like, okay, if I do X, then this will happen. If I do Y, then this will happen. Uh, and setting those rules because, you know, you're not just trying to create these one-off interactions. You're trying to create this library of interaction that can be applied to uh, a set of things. 
So again, you're, you know, to that to that earlier point about developing that design language, interactions are part of that mm -hmm. design language, um, and you don't necessarily want this infinite, you know, library of of these things because then you're constantly uh, introducing a new way of experiencing something to the user, and so there's that new learning curve. You kind of want to create a system of interactions that can be easily understood from a user perspective to mitigate that learning curve because it becomes more of an expectation. So if I click a button, you know, the interaction has maybe a hover or a highlight state, and that's, that's the rule. If I, you know, uh, click a menu nav, maybe it has a different interaction, but that's always going to be the interaction for a menu nav uh, item. So you're setting again these rules for these interactions, and then you know from that perspective, it allows the developer to establish this as well. So like every time he sees a new button, he automatically knows to apply that interaction to it. My last question is: you've you've done all the development, you've done all the design, the client signed off on everything. What happens to the files? I mean, do you do you launch them? I mean. Do you yeah. put the thing into the app store? I mean, how does that whole, like that final deliverable, how do you get over, how do you hand that off? For us, it's, we, we rarely pass the files to the client because I'm not sure what they would end up doing with them. Okay. Um, uh, just because, you know, you know, part of our role is not just about designing and developing, but also deploying. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the website's not a website until it's live. Uh, so for us, it's oftentimes working with the client to set up the server and deploy the files to the server. Um, and the reason for us kind of being involved in that process or kind of maybe really recommending that process is because things change after the site is launched. Uh, for example, the site that you're seeing now for the design conference is definitely not what was launched when we first put it out there a couple months ago. It's completely transformed in many ways in terms of the homepage, in terms of some of the small interactions. And by having that, that access to the server and to be in charge of you know, deploying those changes, we can go in at any given time and make these small tweaks that no one will really notice except for ourselves, but just improve the general experience. Um, the whole point of, of a website or anything digital is that it's, it, again, to my early point, it's constantly evolving and iterating. And that's even on uh, the project itself, you know, they were working on. It's not just about a yearly iteration. It's about almost a daily iteration if, if, if necessary. Um, it, the, the, the reason for having such quick access is that, you know, you want to be able to make those changes that you feel like are necessary to improve the general user experience that you may not have time to, or just not consider at that initial launch or more importantly, Again, with the case of this conference, the identity slightly evolved as well. You know, as Mother New York was developing their general design language that hadn't been established a few months ago, but were recently reintroduced, we wanted to make sure that what was online was also a clear reflection of what was being done uh, in the more physical and printed world. So it's a constant back and forth in that regard. So by by being responsible for the deployment as well, you can easily just go in and make those changes as the site evolves as well. Um, do you have time for one follow-up question? And I can, yeah, of course. I can, uh, yeah, I, I can edit this part out if you said no. Yeah, um, of course. Okay. It, so my follow-up question to that is then this idea of phases. And I, for example, I think we're so used to print, there isn't a phase. You, you design, you print, you're done. Where 
a website, you can have a simple splash product coming soon. And then you could add, hey, we're, we're going into beta. Here's some details. Do a sign up. Uh, <laughs> then, it, yeah. then it evolves yeah. into like, hey, we're going to launch. Um, and so there's this very, I think all websites, re regardless, are just now this very iterative um, process. So how is, is that true? And in this particular case, how aware were you in the beginning that it was, I mean, how aware were you of the phases or were there phases that kind of caught you off guard? Like, oh, <laughs> I got to shift here real quick. Um, I will, to, to your first point, yes, I think uh, the idea of phases or these, um, uh, these iterations, if you will, is very common now. Um, all, not just because uh, it's a way of kind of breaking down the, the scope of work uh, and setting these milestones for, you know, this general public presence, but more importantly, it's about uh, making sure that you're uh, adapting to changing user needs if you need to uh, and figuring things out along the way. Uh, the website is kind of organic in that regard is that it is, it's almost a living organism. Um, you're, you're, you're constantly evolving it uh, to, to match the, the new needs as they arise. Um, so, you know, based on past experiences, we've, this is something that we've just kind of grown to adopt and just understand that, you know, website's never done. Um, it's just constantly changing. Um, so with this project for the AJ conference, you know, even during the initial like conversations, we're just saying, okay, what do we need at launch day? You know, what is that MVP, that minimum viable product, take this thing to launch, get it going so that it meets your requirements to have this online presence. Uh, and oftentimes it's more about, and this is actually a twofold thing. One, it's about, you know, making sure that they have this, this, this placeholder, if you will, that uh, potential attendees can go to and learn basic information too. But also it's about, you know, they haven't gotten all their content ready because it's being crafted. Um, so you can't necessarily have everything all at once and there's expectation that it won't be ready all at once because it's still, still changing, still being built out. Um, and so we walked into that conversation knowing that, okay, what do we need at launch versus what we'll do day two, day three, and so on and so forth. And more importantly, when it comes to the actual design changes, it's more about, okay, um, we know this asset's not quite ready, so we're going to use this placeholder, you know, look and feel for now until you guys are ready. And that was true with like the background video that you see on mm -hmm. the homepage now. That wasn't there at day one because it just wasn't ready. Um, so we had a different homepage general experience uh, for the last couple months, and then we just released this maybe a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we we understand from the get go that this is going to be changing, that this will be a phased approach. And it, it, it helps kind of set expectations as to what we're delivering uh, on day one as opposed to what's being delivered on day two. All right. Um, quickly, with that, with that video that you have on the yep. homepage, was there ever a discussion about, hey, do we want to use a video or do we want to see how far we can push CSS animations and, and recreate <laughs> that? Because you, you might... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, so, again, this is more from a branding perspective. Uh, those videos are being meticulously crafted for the conference. And, okay. you know, they're going to be used not just on the website, but they're going to be used on the, on the conference 
uh, on slide location. decks. Yeah. Yeah, slide decks, uh, the general intro animations for speakers and just the day. So we wanted to make sure that there's a strong connection between that experience uh, in the physical location as well as this virtual experience. And, you know, having those shared elements just kind of, you know, create that bridge. Um, you know, we talk about the web, you know, as like this almost this endless portal, but it really much is a reflection of what's happening in the physical environment. And there should be that strong connection. You don't just want two experiences. You want to have this shared experience. And so we share those elements where we can to just establish that connection. All right. So I, I could be, keep going all day, but I don't I, I want to be respectful of your time. So <laughs> uh, before I let you go, is there anything that W that you want to promote that WN Co wants or for yourself personally, anything you want to share or anything you're like, oh, I wish we would have covered this topic? Um, I guess, uh, you know, from a design perspective, you know, again, I, you know, to be frank, I also came from print background. My my in school, I studied just you know, traditional typography, you know, color theory, um, and transitioning to digital was actually in the last couple of years. Um, so I, one thing I learned, uh, it took me a while to realize is that, you know, don't expect your first pass or your, your first design to be perfect. Um, and you shouldn't be so fussy with something because, you know, it, it will change, you know, it will change within months or within weeks. Um, and because, you know, it'll, you'll want to have a change because you'll be able to re-examine it with fresher eyes or you'll, you'll want to improve upon it because something has changed in the just general environment. You want to apply it to the site. <clears throat> so just to be like less precious about things uh, because it's just so fluid in, in terms of how things are changing in terms of just general design vernacular when it comes to online experiences, but also from technology perspectives, because that's always changing. And as soon as you start becoming very rigid about you know, how things are done, I think you start stymieing your just potential uh, for creativity as well as uh, experimentation. That, that's actually great advice because that's something I need to take into my own. <laughs> I need to take the heart myself. <laughs> yeah, it comes it's, things it's, I do. A tough thing, it's a tough thing to adopt because, you know, I think you kind of lose sight on just trying to make something perfect. And honestly, you know, I think you look at it like when you're dealing with print, um, you know, you, you make it and then it's there basically forever. Uh, <laughs> You know, if you make a book, it's going to be on the shelf forever, and you can't have another chance out of that of redesigning the whole thing. It's it's in the marketplace. Um, the web is not quite like that, and so it's just nice to recognize that opportunity. Yeah, but the only downside to that, and I'm going to just I'm referencing just myself with this one is, um, and I'll even I'm I'm redesigning the website for this. Um, the first one I just threw together because I needed to get it out, but mm -hmm. I, but when I'm trying to do the next one, I feel like like yes, I'm overcrafting it now, and I just need to throw it up there. But at the same time, if you just throw it up there, and you have that kind of mentality, maybe you're not taking a little extra step in you know in craft that you, maybe you would have. You oh yeah, I mean, there's always the always the balance, right? Yeah, okay. And I think you you never want to lose the craft. I mean, uh, because there's or you, know, you settle. Still, yeah, <laughs> well, I think settling sometimes does happen when you know you know either time or mm -hmm. or or just the complexity of something just is taking too long and then you realize it's not worth it right now but that being said you know what you're presenting is still going to be used by an audience yeah and you want to make sure that what you're putting forth represents not just yourself but maybe the project goal as well and it needs to have that clear relationship otherwise you you're basically failing on both both ends um, uh, but that being said it's still also about recognizing okay you know maybe it's not 100% just there, but I'll get to 100% or not 100%, like 99% tomorrow. 
um, and knowing that you're, there's always the opportunity to make those iterative tweaks to just improve upon it. Um, so it's just it's just making sure that you know the base is there. It's just and knowing that you can expand upon it. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today on episode 31 of Design Edu today. I want to thank today's guest, VJ Matthews, for being so generous with his time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design Edu today hosting sponsor DigitalOcean and CDN sponsor Fastly for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like the podcasts, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your friends and colleagues. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases, you can follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like the Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through Twitter or the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.